0: Welcome to a special interview edition of Adult Music here today with drummer and composer Tony Addison. Tony, thanks for joining us.
1: Well, oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Appreciate the opportunity.
0: Oh, our pleasure. So we came across Tony's new recording, Relentless Pursuit, came out September 8th on Odor Deck, and we featured it a few episodes ago, episode 132, Debuts and Discoveries. And we found it really exciting and uh, really thrilling recording. And we were happy to talk about the music. And now we've got a chance to talk to Tony himself. So I guess to get going, you're from D.C., right? Born and raised?
1: Born and raised in Washington, D.C., absolutely.
0: Tell us about how you got into music. Did you have a musical family life? Were you into it from a young age? What got you started on this path?
1: Okay, well, yes, I do have a musical family. In fact, my father was a guitarist. He played electric acoustic guitar. He um, really liked playing blues and R&B and all of those uh, type of styles. So yeah, he was always in the house. My sister was a a flutist. Oh, really? Yeah, she played flute. And and my father played a lot of Motown and all of those types of stuff. So yeah, music was in the house. But it's kind of funny because music was there. It flowed. You know, everybody's singing. I'm singing. Frank's singing. My brother Frank, everybody's singing and playing. But it really wasn't my thing at that time. You know, I just didn't really get into to the music thing, especially playing guitar. My father used to teach us chords and how to structure things, and I just wasn't into that. So <laughs> I leaned more towards the sports. Right. You know, I was a sports guy. I started being an amateur boxer at an early age. And that all came about, actually, because I used to get bullied in school, you uh-huh. know, coming up. And, you know, I was a pretty good-looking little kid, had my big fro, you know, and <laughs> back then, you know, it was about uh, the Jackson five and, you know, having the big fro and, and all of this stuff. So, you know, everybody look, oh, yeah, Michael Jackson Well, no. So anyway, you know, <laughs> it's like, you know, I started to get bullied and picked on. So one day in this class, a friend of mine came and said, Tony, uh, meet me after school. I want to take you somewhere. And he took me to the gym, took me to the boxing gym and I fell in love with the sport it made me a different person. And, you know, even to this day, you know, I have a gym downstairs in my house and I have the boxing gloves and the heavy bag and the uh, you know, speed bag and things like that. So I still utilize all of those things that I was taught back in the day when I was boxing to um, keep myself in condition and my mind in condition and things of that nature. So, you know, I didn't really get into the music thing at first. I didn't, I didn't really, however, You know, I enjoy entertaining. I like to make people smile. I like to make people happy. I was one of those kids that was always in the school plays, always on stage, whether it was dancing or acting or singing, things of that nature. So I understood that I did have that side of me. But as far as playing the drums, it started on pots and pans in the kitchen. So you just started doing it naturally? Yeah, just sitting on the floor. You mm-hmm. know, my mom used to i sit on the floor and then she in there cooking or doing whatever. And, you know, I would grab a couple of spoons and I started banging.
2: Uh-huh.
1: God bless them. They took the noise and, <laughs> you know, that's what happened. And, Beginning of a brilliant career. <laughs> well, I wouldn't call it brilliant, but it, it's on its way. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, eventually time went by, time went through and we moving and we grooving and once I really understood, you know, my mom's mm-hmm. she used to have these listening sessions because my mom's wasn't a musician, but she listened to all different styles of music. She would have us sit down and me and Frankie, my brother, and we would sit down and she would have us listen to Miles Davis, John Coltrane, Cannonball Alley, you know, and we called these listening sessions. Now, I didn't quite understand what was going on. However, I would gravitate to what the drummer was doing. That was the thing that always caught my ear. So, you know, as time went by, it just was a thing with me. I just really enjoyed listening to the drummer. You know, my brothers, they listening to, you know, their style of music. My sister listened to her style of music, whether it was R&B, uh, funk, things like that. But I always found myself listening to what the drummer was doing. So I always had that rhythm thing inside of me that, uh you know, I always enjoyed to listen to. So... You know, that's kind of how things got started, but I still really wasn't into it. I still was doing my thing. I still was into sports and, you know, played soccer in high school and right. junior high school right. and all of that type of stuff. And eventually, I really actually didn't stop playing drums So I was maybe 17, 18 years old, almost out of mm-hmm. high school. You know, but I knew I had the rhythm. I knew I had a certain certain thing happening, but it wasn't jazz, even though my mother had us listening to jazz and, oh, you know, I started well. listening to you know, all of these different drummers, you know, I really didn't understand it. I really didn't know what was going on. But it was later on in life, I would realize that all of that stuff would play a very important part of what I'm doing now, you mm-hmm. know, in hindsight. So coming up as a teenager, I was more into rap, hip hop. The thing that we do here in D.C. was go-go.
2: Right. I remember that.
1: could live in D.C. and not not know go-go <laughs> or not go right. to the go-go's and the parties and stuff like that. So. I mean, that was my thing, go go and jazz. You know, not jazz, but go go.
2: So this um, is the ni- the nineteen eighties. We're talking yeah. about, yeah, okay.
1: Leading to the nineties, you know, it was all about it was all about going to the CDs. All these guys play. Now, Frankie, on the other hand, my brother, you know, he's picked up the saxophone in junior high school, so he was already kind of doing his thing and, and learning an instrument. So he was already playing before I even thought about. If this is what I really wanted to do, because I didn't really know. Mm-hmm. So time went by, time elapsed, and it came to a point where, okay, Frank, hey Tom, we need a drummer for our band. Um, what'd you think? You know, me at that age, I think I can do anything. Sure, I do.
3: <laughs>
1: so you know, I started dipping and dabbing a little bit. But at the time when I did kind of get into it, I was playing go-go. Right. You couldn't tell me I wasn't going to be a go-go drummer. Jazz, I had no interest at all in that music. Frank was saying, man, you got to swing, man. Let's swing, man. I'm like, swing? You know, I want to play some backbeat funk stuff. <laughs> you know, in a few years, I got introduced to this summer jazz program called Lit em Play. And Let 'Em Play was designed, it was an organization designed for young musicians or upcoming musicians or people who may have thought they was interested in music to learn how to play an instrument and get paid for it. Hmm. I'm like, wow, this is what's happening. So Frankie and, and actually David, Dave Marsh was already in Little Play a couple of years before I decided to give it a shot, you know, give it a go. And uh, you know, they they always joke about me how raw I was when I first entered Little uh, Littham Play. I didn't really know any swing or anything like that. But that organization really, really changed my perspective of what this music is all about. Not just the part about playing, but the part of understanding the history of the music, understanding all of the uh, contributions and all of the things that other musicians had to go through at that time. You know, So they did not only teach you how to play an instrument, but they also taught you the history of the music, which gave me an even more broader understanding to what I was about to experience or what I had been experiencing at the time. So. Let him play was a very big part of my growth in the jazz scene. You know, we had a uh, trumpet player, Webster Young, Webster English Young, we called him Lil Diz, and he used to play with Bertrand for a while. So Diz used to always tell me, Tony, yeah, man, you know, you got this feel, man, you got this feel thing happening, man. You know, so once you learn how to play and understand this music, man, you're going to be okay because your feel. And I wasn't quite getting it to feel, the feel. But now I understand what that, what he meant when he said the feel. You can have a lot of chops, you can have a lot of this, you can have a lot of that, but the feel is what people want to hear. And you always hear, you know, always hear people say, man, your feel, you 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 make it feel good. And I said, whoa, okay. So after a while, you know, we playing, I'm getting it in, I'm understanding, I'm learning, I'm getting my chops and everything like that you know, one thing led to another. And I told my moms, I really want to do this. And she said, okay. And she went on and bought me my very first drum set at Chuck Levens in Silver Spring. She uh, got me a five piece Tamil, all white. And um I just started playing, started learning. Then that's when I ventured into the Washington School of Music. And that's when I first started taking my first drum lessons and really understanding the process of learning how to play drums. Great friend of mine, he's even a friend of the day, uh, Broderick Robinson. He was my very first drum instructor, and he taught me the fundamentals of drums and certain beats and certain rhythms and things of that nature, and got me started. And let him play, man. We went and we we playing this jazz, and I'm learning all of this stuff, and learning all this different music, and understanding with how things go. And you know, it just opened up a whole nother bag of worms for me. It just made me really, really want to do this. And honestly, me and Frankie and a few other guys, man, we used to stay in, in, in the house, man. And we would practice and study and practice and study. I mean, we would, it would be an all night thing every single night. And the great thing about letting them play besides the music was that it kept me off the streets. It kept me in a safe environment where otherwise I may have been out there doing who knows what or with who knows who. It gave me something to do. It gave me something positive that I can lean on where I may have been out in the streets doing who knows what otherwise. But Them Play was a great organization that allowed us to really, really keep ourselves in a safe environment and learn an instrument and learn how to play. So I give a lot of credit to Them Play with my development. I, I thank them for that.
2: I wanna go back to your Your mother, for a second, you said that she played jazz in the house. And I'm just curious, what did she listen to? What was the first jazz that you really heard?
1: Man, she would play a lot of John Coltrane. Okay. She loved Cannonball Alley. Mm -hmm. So she played a lot of his music and a lot of Herbie Hancock. Right. So these are the things we were listening to now. And she would actually say, sit down. I don't know. Maybe it was partly because she wanted to keep us out of mischief because we stopped running around the house. But at the same time, she did give us that platform to listen to the music and, and kind of get it in our system, whether we realized it or not at the time. Uh-huh. And as years went by and I look back at it, I'm like, wow, that was something that, you know, I look back on and it really helped me. It opened my ears. It made me to understand what I was listening to, who I was listening to. Now I had to find out the why.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Why am I listening to this? What is this going to do for me as far as becoming a musician? So when we would probably go listen to, uh, well, practice certain songs, I would go back and, I, oh, I've heard this song before. Oh, I understand this. Oh, yeah, I've heard that. I've heard this. I, I, okay. Now it's starting to all make sense. And, you know, my mom, she she loved all styles of music. She would play some Johnny Cash sometimes. She would play mm-hmm. some herbie Mann. She would play some Elton John. You know, of course, she would get into the... Uh, you know, all of the Motown, things like that. But she specifically always set us down to listen to jazz. Yeah. So it was was a good thing that she did, and I appreciate her for doing that. Once
0: you uh, decided that, you know, jazz was going to be the road of music you're going on, who were the drummers that had the biggest influence on you? Who has formed your style as someone you copied maybe or tried to emulate when you were developing?
1: That's a great question. And I love that word emulate, not imitate, but emulate. Hmm. Max Roach was my favorite. He was the first drummer that I actually really started focusing on and listening to, and listening to his rhythmic approach and, and the way that he phrased his drumming and his solos and things of that nature. So I studied Max, and still and still to today, I, I go listen to Max when I feel like, okay, I need to go back to my roots and check some check some things. Sometimes you can get so far into the music team have to go back and start over again so i will always lean back on max in fact a lot of the licks that i hit in the uh the cd relentless pursuit were max licks that i've studied i mean me and frankie man we would sit up in the room and day after day night after night playing the records over and over and over and over and i would just play them and then i'd go back on the drums and try to play it and i listen, and i'd go back on the drums and try to play it so max i used to listen to max i mean his rhythmic approach. Now, when I started, when I got introduced to Blakey, I started to notice his power and his thunder. And I wanted that. And I'm like, man, that's what's up, that thunder, man, that power. So I started to study Blakey for his power and his thunder and the way that he, you know, approaches shuffles and, and things of that nature. So it was from Max to Blakey, and a friend of mine's late, Ron Sutton Jr., saxophone player, who was also in the Let Him Play program, he said, Tony, listen to some Philly Joe, Philly Joe Jones. So I started studying Philly, and that's when the rudimental approach started to take effect. Now, And I listened to all of the rudiment things, he was on his flams and his paradiddle diddles and double strokes and all of the things that he was just maneuvering all over the drum set with all of these different rudiments. And when I wanted to practice rudimentals, I would go to Philly. When I wanted to practice power, I would go to Blakey. And when I wanted to practice just the other stuff, I would go to um, Max. Now, if I want to practice some funk stuff, I go to Dennis Chambers. Because, you know, to me, he's the funk master. He The pocket thing is what's up. Was happening. So I go to Dennis and then I uh, may go to Dave weckoff I want to listen to the Latin thing, you know, because his the way he's so fluent around the drums and you have this touch. I really enjoy listening to him. So I, you know, so I listen to different drummers for different reasons. Sure. It depending on what I want to study at that particular time, doing my, you know, my time when I'm practicing and working on my chops. So those are the guys that I listen to the most, you know, it's plenty more guys I listen to. Of course, Kind of funny to try to name them all right now, but yeah, those are the main ones: Max, Bob, Blakey, Philly Joe, you know, and the rest of the cats. So,
0: well, that's a good base to build any sort of drumming <laughs> style out of all the big names. Yeah.
1: Oh, and let me not forget—I'm sorry, let me not forget my boy R.P. Ralph Peterson, the late Ralph Peterson, who was one of my private drum instructors for many, many years, and and was also a really great friend of mine who I studied with privately before he passed away, was a tremendous attribute to my playing. He took me to a whole nother way of thinking, a whole nother way of playing, just a whole completely different approach where it wasn't just the bebop. It was just the bebop, the Latin, the fusion, the funk, the whole nine yards. And of course, you know, when you listen, I'm listening to Jeff Tane Watts and all the things that he does. You know, Jeff is another one of my favorites. So, you know, Chris Coleman is another funky drummer that I listen to. So I can go on and on. And if I call guys out as we have this interview, you know, because there's other drummers that come to mind. But for the most part, those are the other guys, a lot of the guys that I listen to and study yet to this day. You know, so probably after this interview when I go to practice, I'm going to listen to one of those guys before I get started.
0: So I have to ask you about the gospel influence, because your earlier record was a pure gospel recording. And, you know, coming into jazz, there's not a lot of, Players, uh, I guess I think of mainly piano players. There's uh, Cyrus Chestnut, Eric Reed, who come from a gospel background, and they bring that into jazz, and they do some gospel tunes on their jazz recordings. How does being a gospel drummer work out? What's the role of the drummer when you're playing gospel music, and how has that carried over into your jazz
1: playing? That's a great question. Well, the first thing... When I did start writing for that particular uh, He Is Love CD, I didn't even look at it from a drummer's perspective. I looked at it more from a vocal perspective, a lyrical perspective, where the lyrics were more what I focused on versus the drumming. Mm -hmm. And when you get to a certain point in your spiritual journey, you, you try to find things to express how you really feel, just to express where you come from to the point where you are now and and that's that's what led me to. I just felt compelled to do a gospel CD. You know, I wanted to give God His upfront, His first. So I just decided to write. So I started writing lyrics. I started writing the music to go to it. But it had nothing. It didn't have anything to do with my drumming. It had more to do with my life and things I've been through and things I've been going through and the places that I've been in and, and and where I am now. That I wanted to express in my um you know, my spiritual journey. So when I started to write that He Is Love CD, I just pretty much wrote how I felt, you know, lyrically and started putting music to it uh, rhythmically and harmonically and things of that nature until I started to develop a sound and develop, a, uh, you know, where, what direction I actually wanted to go in. And when you listen to the CD, you see I have, a, you know, a lot of different styles, a lot of different sounds going on, where I didn't try to strategize what I wanted to do or where I wanted to go with. it, I just wanted people to know how I felt about what I was doing and why I was doing it. Now that I'm even closer to God and I even have an even better relationship, my lyrics will be even completely different to a degree because my relationship with God has grown. So my lyrics will grow and my music will grow and and the way that I approach it would be different because I'm a different person even now after 10 years or however long it's been since I did the uh Love CD. You will hear the change or I would say the development in my growth with the Lord that will wholly transcribe it to the music that I would do next for that. But it had anything, nothing to do with jazz. I, I didn't feel like, you know, I needed to, you know, even though people may say, well, it sounds kind of jazzy, you know. It sounds like it got a little <laughs> jazz in it, you know, which may be true because that's what I know. And that's okay because the whole process and the whole purpose of it was to hopefully get people closer to God and hopefully that it will inspire them to um give up whatever they need to give up and let loose and, and, and give their lives to the Lord. And that was my whole purpose of it. Is this you singing on that album, by the way? Well, I did sing one track on there. Oh, I see. Okay. I saw one track on there have other people on the CD that get a lot of the singing people on the wall right here who done did a lot right. of the singing. Now, the next project that I do
3: mm-hmm.
1: gospel project I've learned now I can write the music that's in the keys that I can sing in mm-hmm. where now I can actually do more lead singing than I did on the first one. So as you grow, and musically, and as you grow spiritually, you will grow in your writing where, okay, now understand what I have to do. If I want to sing, put it in the keys that I want to sing in. That's going to make it comfortable for me. And at the same time, doesn't hinder the process of the, the message that I'm trying to. Uh... Right.
2: Yeah, just to, for the listeners, the He Is Love album, it's a gospel album, came out in 2010. And we're talking about your new jazz album, which is this year. What happened in between those two years? What did you do?
1: Life happened, man. I uh, mean, you know, <laughs> get married, you have children, you get a house, you got a uh, job, you know, you're gigging, you, you're playing at, you're serving at church, you know, life right. happens and things kind of get in the way and not in a bad way, but in a great way because, you know, I've been very fortunate and very blessed to have the family that I have and the wife that mm-hmm. I have, Crystal, nothing but the greatest support to me throughout my whole music career, even up to this point, man, she's been great and a support to me uh, with this relentless pursuit, man. She's out there and she's making T-shirts made and getting this done and getting that done and, you know, just hanging with me, man. So you has been a great support to me. Um, So life gets in the way and I'm glad you brought that up because that's what made me want to do this jazz
3: mm-hmm.
1: And I'm like, well, I played in pretty much every club I can possibly play in in the DMV. Mm-hmm little traveling to Philly, a little traveling to New York, a little. I not much, but a little. You know, I've had the opportunity and being very fortunate to play for three different uh, US presidents. Wow. Done a lot of theater around the city. Theater is nice. I love doing theater. But I realized that I don't have a recording. Not right. anything. You know, when I was coming up, we didn't talk about recording that much. It didn't come up. It wasn't a thing that my circle or the people that I was involved we didn't talk about, we talked about gigging, making money, playing here, going to that nightclub, doing this nightclub, but people didn't really talk about recording that much, so that wasn't something that was on the forefront of, of my agenda. However, as you get older and you realize, man, I need to live, leave a legacy here for my children or other young musicians. So I felt compelled that I have to put out a jazz CD. And I right. didn't want to put out a CD that, um, you know, I'm copying other people's music and I'm I'm playing what's already been played. I wanted to play things that came from my heart, my soul, my spirit, that people can relate to me, who Tony is. Mm-hmm. So that's why I decided to write my own compositions, because who else can tell my story the way that I wanted to go but myself? So, you know, that's what I did.
2: Just one more thing. You mentioned you played for three presidents. And I'm wondering, does that mean you went to the White House?
1: <laughs> I wish. <laughs> <laughs> Well, what were the circumstances? It was actual presidential events where the ah. president was there and it was for the president, but it I wasn't actually White House. The two Bushes, both Bush, the father and son, uh-huh. President, Bush, father and son, and also uh, Bill Clinton. Uh-huh. And I've done a lot of events for um, Barbara Bush. She is the sweetest lady you ever want to meet. Wow. She used to have um, events for border babies. Um, back in the day, and she would always call me and Frankie. We were, we were called the Frontline back mm-hmm. then, the Frontline Jazz Ensemble. And the Frontline would get those calls, and, you know, we would just do them, man. And um, so even though it wasn't at the White House, it was right. still a presidential event, and the president was there. We even got acknowledged a couple of times from the president. So, you know, that was, um, that was pretty cool, and it was great. It was good, too, i be able to do that.
2: That's fantastic, yeah. Huh.
1: You don't really think about it when it's being done. right? Look back later at it, and you realize, wow, okay, I had the opportunity to do that. Thank you, thank you, Jesus, for giving me that opportunity. Um, Right. You know, so, you know, I put that on the resume, of course, and it's more about the opportunities that this music presents itself. To the young people out there, this music can put you in positions that you never thought it would. This music can take you to places that you never thought you would go. This music will, have you planned for people that you never thought you would meet? It's the greatest thing ever if you just stick in there and hang in there and learn this music. Not just jazz, but we're speaking of jazz. I mean, you can do it with hip-hop, of course, as you see now, mm-hmm. and other styles of music. But when you talk about jazz, it can open doors that pretty much only God can open. So Man. we take it. We take it.
0: Yeah. Let's talk about uh, composing and get into your record. When I saw this on the new release list and I took a quick look at the description I saw. Oh, drummer as a leader. Well that's not so unusual, but drummer as a composer and the whole (laughs) album is composed of original material. So I thought, oh, that's interesting. And I'm wondering, because different instrumentalists have a different approach to composing. So if you're a wind player or a vocalist, you start with the melody. Well that's how I played really played trumpet and I have oh I know this melody. I get it in my head. Then I gotta go to the piano and sort of figure out the harmonies. And when I looked at pop songs that were written by guitarists, they always seemed strange to me until I figured out guitar later in life, I said, oh, he moved his finger over there and it sounded good. You know, it it wouldn't be obvious on piano. And songs written by bass players are different altogether because they look from the the bottom up, up. They're looking up and they see all these kind of harmonic pivots you can get. As a drummer, how does that fit into your composing process and where do you start out? And where do the ideas come from? And how do you work out the structures and the melodies and harmonies of your tunes?
1: Again, gentlemen, that's another great question. And thanks for asking. Now, it kind of starts for me. First, I want to decide, well, for this particular project, we're going to stick with this particular project because this is my only jazz project right now. What kind of sound do I want? That's what I ask myself. What kind of sound do I want? Do I want a big sound? Do I want a small ensemble sound do I want, you know, something chilled, you know, studying at the university of the district of Columbia under uh, Calvin Jones, the late Calvin Jones, um, and having the opportunity to play in the big band there. I just fell in love with big band music. I mean, I can listen to it all the time, you know, I enjoy listening to it and I I really enjoy playing it. So I decided I wanted big, you know, I'm a go, go big. I wanted big. I wanted a big sound. So once I established what kind of sound I wanted, then I said, well, what kind of instrumentation do I want? And I said, well, you know, listen to Blakey and my boy R.P. Ralph Peace and some of the things that they've done. I said, okay, I want a three-horn hum. I want trumpet, saxophone, and trombone. So once I established that and realized the sound that I wanted, and I liked the hits of the big band, those big band hits, man, I mean... Nothing like the hits of a big band and and you swinging and you grooving and you ba da da you hitting doing those hits. That's what I wanted. So once I established the sound that I wanted, that was the first thing. Then the second thing I did, so I would come upstairs and I would practice, probably, you know, working on my chops, you know, just the things that we do, work on our chops. So we say upstairs working on my chops, I might practice for a couple of hours. Then I start getting into, you know getting into my bag, I'm I'm feeling good, I'm I'm warmed up, and I start just playing and and I'm and I'm thinking and I'm and I'm playing certain rudiments and I'm playing certain fields and I'm coming da, but then I'm singing to myself, you know, at the same time. So I'm humming and I'm singing and I'm playing and I'm starting to feel something. I'm starting to find a groove. Now we speak of never say never. So I'm playing and then all of a sudden I come up with Ba Ba-do-ba. This is on the drums. ba do da 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 da, da do, ba. Da 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 da, da. I said, okay, I like that. Uh, let me emulate a horn on that part and see how it sounds. So that's what I did. That's so why I started to emulate a the horn. Then once I learned that lick from just to that point on, ba da do da, do, da. Then I would go to the piano, and I would find those notes. Then I would play that down. And once I got it pretty comfortable where I knew where I was in the time signature that I wanted to be, not necessarily what key I want to play it in yet. I haven't gotten to that point yet. Mm-hmm. I would set up a Pro 2 session, open up a new session, run a drum track, play that same lick down, two or three, four bars, go to the piano, play those same notes two or three bars down. Then I would listen to it and see how it sounds. I'm like, okay, all right, that works. Once I got that structure and got an idea, then I would go from there. Now, maybe not the same day, because you know, you, you have to go with when your creative juices are flowing. So my creative juices may have flowed for just that much. And if you try to force it, then ah, it becomes wacky. It becomes not fun. It becomes not happening. Then you get frustrated, and then you, you don't do it anymore. So... I would do it that way. So, most times I go from the drums, then I go to the piano, then I would run tracks and record however much I got down. Then, if it takes another day or two, when I'm thinking about it in the process of doing whatever I'm doing, I'm always, my wheels are always turning. My mind is always thinking about the next step, no matter what I'm doing. So, I could be having dinner with my wife and kids, and in the back of my mind, I'm saying, and I'm thinking, what will come next? That once I figure that out, same process, go through the drums, go to the piano, record. And it's funny because sometimes I can be asleep and I have a dream of a melody or some music. I'm like, oh my God, I wake up, oh, that's great. I will run and grab my phone, go in the bathroom somewhere. Wife, What you doing, where you going? I'm like, I got this. <laughs> going in and, and hum it. So I would, once again, if I felt like it, I would get up in the middle of the night, run upstairs to the studio, play it down, record it and keep it moving. So a lot of things come not in that moment, but even later on two, three days later, it may come. Because a lot of times I may have had something and didn't record it on my phone. Oh, I remember, And when I woke up, it's gone. So I've learned to always have my phone next to me. So whenever something comes, I can just record it right there on the spot, Johnny on the spot, record it, take it upstairs, play it down, record it on Pro Tools, and keep moving. So that's how my approach is now. It can be, sometimes I might start on piano, fiddling around coming up with little ideas. I watched my professor, uh, Lake Calvin Jones, at UDC when I used to go to school for big band practice. I would come to school early because I was determined that uh, I wanted to be the best big band drummer that I could be. So I would come to school early and and sit down and watch him, and I would watch how he would compose his music. And sometimes he would would play just some single notes, then he would write it down, say some more single notes, write it down. So I took that approach. I'm like, hmm. So that's what I would do play some notes, write it down, play some other notes, write it down. So it comes in different, different ways. It's, right. it's you know, I, I listened to you guys on the recording when you were actually playing the CD and talking about the CD and dissecting it. And I don't know which one of you guys said it, but one of you was like, well, it's, it's kind of unorthodox, you know, the, the way that he does what he does and or mm-hmm. whatever. And I'm like, that is the greatest thing ever because you're absolutely <laughs> right. That is so, so to the point. Because I know it's unorthodox.
0: I'm going to get into some of that when we start listening to this. Because, you know, normally you sit down with the jazz CD and you're thinking, okay, this is A-A-B-A, 32 measures. Uh, okay, there's a bridge here. And when I put on your recording, I was like, okay, let's go back and listen to that
1: again. <laughs> <laughs> and that's cool. I can dig that. Because it is unorthodox. And I think a lot of that comes from when I used to box. Oh, yeah. All right. I'm all kind of unorthodox where I was a southpaw, and a southpaw means you left-handed, but you lead with your right hand, but I was right-handed, and I led with my right hand. So it was kind of unorthodox the way that I fought, but it was effective. And right. the bottom line is, what works for you? What is effective, and what are you trying to do? And I find that that was effective for me, you know, even when I used to dance, on this TV show a long time ago, back in the day, Dance Connection, not to get off the subject, but I used to be away at this place, and this restaurant and the guy I worked with, always talking about, he was a dancer and he danced on TV. And I'm like, yeah, really? He like, you want to audition? I'm like, yeah, well bring a suit to work the next day. And he gonna take me to the audition. So he took me to the audition and I made the audition and I danced on the show for probably, I don't know how many years. And it was a great experience for me. It It was just so much fun to be able to dance on television. I learned so much things about TV and the way things go behind the camera. But at the same time, it was another one of those situations where I was unorthodox because I used to be one of those kids that would go to the pop contest and see all the guys doing the pop. And then I would go to, I like to go to the, um, the places where they were having other styles of dancing. Yeah, I would pick some of that stuff up. But when it came to my style, I utilized a few of those styles, you know, break dancing and all of that type stuff incorporated to my own thing where it seemed a little unorthodox because I did it my way. However, I did utilize some of the dance moves that other dancers were doing that made me who I was because I didn't want to do exactly what they were doing. I just wanted to use some of the things that they were doing to to express how I felt. Right. And that's the same thing I do with the music. So, yes, some of it may and is and probably will continue to be a little unorthodox. But however, that's that's what works for me.
0: Well, that's what makes it interesting, too. It's on Odeon Deck and Odeon Deck's a label that has been really interesting to us. Yeah. Because they do classical and jazz. And the first recording we got on there was the Greek piano trio, Spiral Trio, and that became one of our favorite records.
2: Still listening to what it now. What a discovery
0: this is. Yeah. And I got to keep my eye on this label. And then we did a classical recording, the of Spanish, Spanish piano music. Yeah. yeah. And then This year in April, we did this uh, French octet that they do like Mingus style, real exciting stuff, the Octet La Nocturne. And then I saw you're on there and I said, well, that's interesting because they don't put out a lot of recordings. And I know they have a really unique kind of democratic audition process for that. We didn't feature it, but I did listen to William Knowles' recording because he made a record with uh, Mark Saltman on there. And so I'm wondering, how did you get that connection through and get things set up with Odra Deck?
1: Well, of course, me, William, Mark, we are all good friends, man. We've been doing other for over 30 years. We performed together on many, many, many occasions on many, many different platforms. And they had already been accepted on the label when I was still preparing to um, write my music and get it recorded to be ready to be released. So they introduced me to Odra Deck and I'm like, well, you know what? It's not like I have a label. It's not like I had people knocking my door down trying to get me signed or anything of that nature. In fact, I don't know anybody. I mean, you know, that's another thing that was bothering me because I'm like, I've been in this business for a long time and I haven't been on any recordings, except for my own recordings. I haven't recorded with any other musicians, any other, anybody. And, you know, that's one thing Ralph Peterson told me. He said, well, look, Tony, if you want to record, write your own music and record. Don't rely on anybody else. You know, you set your own destiny. And you know? so that's what I decided I was going to do. Just do my own thing. So William and them introduced me to all of that. That's how I heard about them. And I kind of looked them up and checked them out and seen what was happening. And, William and him and Mark released their CD and it went very well. And I was very happy for them, of course, and very pleased on how things were going. And I said, OK, well, I want to follow that trend because that sounds good. It feels good. So that's what I did. So once I finished the recording, I sent it to the deck and, you know, we went through the process and then eventually they sent me a yes on the project and we've been going with it ever since. You know, it's a great platform because I feel like it's good to start, maybe start overseas, start out of the country, start in Europe, in Italy, and wherever it is besides the United States and let it work its way back. So I thought it was a great strategy. Time would tell whether it works or not. And, you know, right now they accepted it and they actually uh, asked me to be on the committee. So now I'll be receiving music from other artists listening to it. And
0: that's really a unique process. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's very different. But again, I use that word effective and it worked for me. And hopefully when other people hear about it and musicians want to uh, send their stuff out there, send it to the audit deck and promise it will work for them as well
0: seems like a good fit. All the records they've done so far in jazz have something a little unique about them. And that made it really interesting to me. So I'm going to keep my ear on their label and yeah, hopefully that becomes fruitful in the future.
2: We should mention, by the way, the uh, classical album we did was Iberian Impressions by Paulo Oliveira on Odra Deck Records. And that was a really good record too.
0: All right, let's jump into this recording. And I think You really did a good job picking the first track because it makes that (laughs) first impression and you had me right away because the horns come right in and they slam you with those big horn lines. So I'm listening to that and getting in the groove and then at the end of that section, the meter changes up but you also pull the beat out at the end of that line. So that had me hooked like, okay, there's going to be a lot of rhythmic things that are interesting here. And then the horns come back for that final blast and I thought that was just really cool. Let's play a little bit of that and then you can tell us about how this tune got started. cool
2: Like <laughs> <laughs> the end of the section too before the drum fill it was great that's cool
1: yeah um uh, well first of all um never say never the title came to me because it was one of those things where i felt like i would never get the cd done and like i said it was long overdue and that could have been the title track of this whole city long overdue you know because it was long overdue and um you know i wanted to um Have a message Which each title that I've written for each song has a certain message to it. And the message for this song is no matter what you're going through, no matter what you're doing, no matter how hard it may seem, if you think you're not going to get there, always remember, never say never. Because if you stay relentless to your pursuit and you keep on trying, you will get there. So don't ever say never say never, because you will get there if you really try hard enough and believe in yourself and have faith, it will happen for you. And that's the message that I try to present in this particular song. That's why I named it Never Say Never. Now, incidentally, Never Say Never, at first, we're going to use that for the title of the CD. But things change, you know, your, your ideas kind of fluctuate a little bit. But th- I knew that that horn part in the beginning catch catchy because it was powerful. You know, for me as a writer, I always say, beginning, the middle, and the end. It's three of the most important parts of a song because when you're listening to the beginning of a song, if it catch you, boom, you're going to pay attention. Now, you can kind of, you know, eating dinner, you can, you, know, you kind of get lost in the mix in, in the middle, I mean, in, before the middle. And when you get to the middle, you want to do something that's going to catch them again. And then, of course, at the end, it's always the last thing that they hear. So you want to make sure that the ending has something substantial that they will remember as well. And also, when I was writing, I was like, okay, well, most tunes you hear is always the sax player, play the trumpet player, the horn's always up front, and then you might get a piano solo and a bass solo. Let's change this whole thing up. This is that unorthodox part of me. Let's let William play first. Let William do his solo first. Let's do let's, let's pitch a speech of piano first before the horns get in. So that's why William came in first, because I like, that would just change it up a little bit, especially after that big hit. Do die. You know, just let it mellow out a minute and let William do his thing. You know, even in that three, four section, when I was listening to it in the beginning, it was like I held it for four, but it was in four, four time. It was like, that is just too long for me to hold them notes. Let's change it. Let's Let's put it in three. Let's let it swing a little bit in a different direction to kind of give us some excitement or interest or whatever, you know, that will give people another a second. Listen, oh, what, what, what would you say? You know, and um, hmm. that's why I pretty much uh, put that three in there. And of course, when we get to the end, before we get to the solo session, the horns pop back in again. That actually wasn't written. I decided to do that during one of the practices we had. And I'm like, you know what, fellas, let's put that right back before the solo section starts to give it another burst of energy. It's like a
0: punch before the bell inbox. That got my attention.
1: Yeah, so that wasn't a written thing. That was something that I decided to add in there, you know, during one of the rehearsals. So that was, you know, kind of improvised that. And of course, William came in with, and did his thing. And I'm trying to, I just had a student before, you know, we came on tonight. And I was explaining to him, you know, the importance of the accompaniment. I am accompanying William. I am not playing over top of William. I want William to do what he does, and I want to do things in the back of him to enhance what he's doing. And that was my whole thought process when he was doing his solo, is to kind of let him know, hey, man, I hear you. I'm listening to you, so I'm going to do some of the things you do and feed off you, you know, because it's, it's great when musicians know that the rest of the band is listening to him and is I'm not in my own world, Dave not mm-hmm. in his own we are all over the place. We actually listening to what each other doing. And that makes the uh whomever solo on at that particular time feel appreciated because you know we listening, we got you. And so that's the feel that I want to have when William was soloing. And then of course, who was that Sensei came and did his thing? Oh no, Frankie came in and and blew his solo. And then Sensei followed with his solo. And then we kind of went through the top of it again and and took it out with the hard hits on the toms. You now William kind of tinkled it out of there. So but yeah, that's the whole song in a nutshell where never say never whatever you do never say never because if you keep going and you keep pushing and you keep praying all things apart
0: well it definitely made a first impression with that one yeah that was a strong opening
2: I just want to give these guys credit william knowles on the piano he's also the arranger on this album
1: yes i always tell william man you you are the constant professional man you're a musical i always tell him you are a musical genius Huh. And he really did well with um, arranging the music. So once I got it to a certain point of my ability, I handed over to him and let him do what he does. And and he really did a great job with me and William. man, we've been performing together from nightclubs to theater for over 30 years. And, you know, we know what each other thinking and we know what each other want to do. And we just pretty much took it upon ourselves to do what we thought. I did what he thought I what he would do, and he did what I thought he would do. If, if that makes sense, by yeah, saying yeah. that, no, it's right. perfect. Really,
0: you got to really trust someone to hand them your music and believe they're going to take it in the right direction, and you have to have that mental link.
1: Yeah, and then of course Frankie and Reginald, you know, they did a phenomenal job on the solos, very exciting, very powerful, and you know, in their own rights, they. I feel like I want to always allow the musicians to have their freedom and express themselves in their own way. You know, and you do what you do, man. And as long as we feel what you're doing, and that's the thing, what I always say, as far as this whole CD is concerned, I want people to feel this music. I don't necessarily need you to always hear it, but if you hear it and you don't feel it, right? I'm not quite getting or accomplishing what I wanted to accomplish. I want you to feel and understand what this music is all about. So when you think of never say never. And you think about the messages I'm trying to portray to you as far as what the title is, and then you listen to the music. If you can feel where this music is going and with it and you allow it to take you to a place that maybe you're not when the time that you started it, but when you finish it, you're at a different place. Then that means it is actually taking you to another dimension of where you were in the beginning. And that's because you feel what we're doing versus hearing everything that we do.
0: Right. The second tune on the recording, Inner Thoughts, I felt the feature of this is the change-ups. You got the swing and Latin, change back and forth, you know, comes back from like Art Blakey days. And I feel that really feeds the soloist. When you come out of the Latin back into the swing, it really Uh sort of pushes the soloists to let loose with different ideas. And that was a pretty interesting one. But the tune that really uh, surprised me in the direction it went is the third track, uh, Uncharted Soul. Because it starts out with this kind of cute, cool jazz-like theme, and then, whoa, it goes uh, somewhere completely different. Let's take a listen to that, and I want you to tell me where this idea came from. We start out with that cool swing and and it's all happy and then we're in like minor, and we got this kind of reggae beat and then those brass fanfares. What's going on there, Tony?
1: <laughs> I don't know, man. So <laughs> that's just how I felt at the time. So okay, so we came in with the with you know the, the jazz thing, the bebop the, the, uh, little cool jazz thing happened up top. Then we went to this twelve eight thing. That was one of those things where, you know, I've I've been studying a lot of Afro-Cuban music and that was kind of an Afro-Cuban kind of sort of feel that I wanted to implement. Now, when I was writing this song, I actually started it off in the bridge. The bridge was the first thing that that I found in this song versus the beginning leading up to the bridge. Now, when we got to maybe session C, B, and William started comping, the way he was comping did give it that reggae feel, which was which was really cool. Now, it wasn't actually written that way, but you know when you have to when you have guys like William and and the rest of the guys, Dave and everybody else, you know you give them the freedom to do what they do, and the way that he played it and and, and way he put it was on point. And then we had Michael Fishu who came in on the first solo, and did his thing, and then of course we we swung it on top, and then we came back in with the twelve eight. On next to uh Reginald with the same with the same vibe and Frankie at the end. And then when we when we ended it, we didn't come back in with the uh head of the tune. We came back in on the 28th thing and took it on out. That's why this song is called Uncharted Soul. Because when I was in the studio writing this stuff, I had no idea of where I was going. In fact, I was stuck. And I realized, I said to myself, Tony. You're going to have to dig within your soul, man, in order to find something that's going to work. You're going to have to dig into that part of your soul that maybe have never been digged in or or, or dwelled into before. Because, you know, it's it's, it's difficult after a while to write music and to figure things out and to come and be creative. And when I started digging deep within myself, these are the things that were coming out. These are the things that were, you know, the the phrases and, and the harmonies and all of those other things that was coming out at the time. So I really did have to dig into my uncharted part of my soul, a part of my soul that hasn't been dwelled into before to come up with these ideas. So when you ask me, how did I do it? I don't know. (laughs) I really don't. It happened, you know, in a time when I was writing the music that it just flowed, the juices flowed in that direction, so I went with it. You know, now I didn't do it all in one night. I perhaps came back on certain parts of it, but Uncharted soul was one of the songs that I actually wrote that I actually finished it pretty much in a couple of days where some of the songs that I made it may took me two or three days, four days I do have how long but I just pretty much played how I felt and and this is how I came out. I like to, to be funky at times. I like the 12 thing going on and you know. Of course we want to swing so that's pretty much it that
0: was cool something everybody can relate to chicken and hot sauce and I didn't oh, play yeah. this one when we uh, did the episode and I know Mike liked it a lot
2: I liked it a lot so I mentioned it at the
0: end yeah and uh, let's check yeah. out how this gets going I, think I described that to me it reminds me of new orleans that uh right. the snare beat yeah it. yeah it's a really happy sound and again a completely different rhythmic feel than what we've heard so far
1: yes yeah, sir absolutely so the story of this song is me and my boy ferdy Calderon, who's uh one of my you know a very good friend of mine's and he's um you know she's always with me he he does a lot of the recordings for me he's a recording engineer in fact he Engineered, he is love, and he also was the recording engineer on this project. So once in a while, we would get together, Freddie and myself, and I would call him over to do a session for me. And after the session, you know, we got to feed the musicians. Musicians, they love to eat, so you have to have some food. So I would always go get a couple of rotisserie chickens, you know, because <laughs> it's <was> cheap. <laughs> and everybody liked chicken. tastes like chicken. So, right. and he would always ask for hot sauce. So the running joke was, Hey, Tony, can I get some hot sauce with this chicken? And we would always do that. So one day, me and my son was sitting down eating some rotisserie for chicken, and he was like, hey, Dad. You know, his voice done got all deep now, and now he's become a teenager. Hey, Dad, can you pass me that hot sauce? And, you know, we kicking it, and we laughing and stuff and having a good time. am like, you know what, Terrell? I'm going to write a song about chicken and hot sauce. <laughs> and he's like, really, Dad, for real? I'm like, yeah. And then I started to sing, da, 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 da. you know, I'm just laughing around the kitchen and having a good time and didn't think twice about it. And then it just came out. And what did I do? Ran straight to my phone and recorded it, my voice. And as soon as I got a chance, I ran upstairs and started playing it, you know, on piano, find the notes, play it. Then I had to decide, um, you know, what beat would go good with this So when I thought about it, I was like, um, hmm, it's hot, it's chicken, you know, uh, spicy. Let's do the New Orleans style. You know, gumbo is spicy. You know, mm-hmm. it's hot, fun. And and that's how I came up with that specific groove. Now, when you listen to think the section C, you get into the hits. You know, that's that big band thing that I kind of felt you know, once in a while that I wanted to kind of implement it to some of the songs. So that's what I did with that part of the song. Now, when we go back to the beginning and we have Dave solo on top, that's another one of those times where I was like, okay, well, let's change it up. Let's let the bass player have a solo in, in front mm-hmm. versus everybody else kind of switch it up a little bit. So Dave, did this thing, and of course, you know, we had Michael come and do his thing with the stop time and then we swing it and you know, then to come back into the, uh, the section with the um the regular groove, and this went on through the whole entire song, and where you know I, I decided to take a little bit, you know, give me a little bit of it, you know. If you notice on this on this whole project, I didn't really take a lot of solos because I didn't want this this music to be about me and just playing drums all through. The, I wanted this to be about the group and. People don't necessarily, unless you're a drummer, want to necessarily hear a bunch of drums all through the CD. So I decided not to do a lot of solos, but this one called for it. So, you know, I gave it a little bit on on, on my end. And then, of course, we came back in with the, uh, you know, on top and, and took it out. And if you notice, uh, at the end of that, I put a little twist on it. And that, at the very end of the song, with the five hits we did on the end, that wasn't written in. That was something I decided to do in the studio, that was just one of those moments when i'm saying hey y'all let's let's do this let's hit do these hits at the end and i do the three stooges little thing bop, bop, beat at the end and because actually this song i was thinking was going to be at the end of the entire cd to say that's all folks but it wasn't you know whatever <laughs> right.
0: yeah i noticed that final horn line i wasn't expecting it and the- oh okay yeah nice tag on the end
1: that was uh, uh of course dave up top Michael Thomas on trumpet. Then we have uh, Frankie, then we did Reginald at the end. I didn't really have a lot of time to put William in the middle of that because I didn't want the songs to be too long. I was kind of fighting towards how long the E song need to be for time purposes. So it was sometimes I had to not, okay, well, we won't have a piano solo on this one, or we might have a not have a trumpet right. solo, you know, just the time constraint. So, yeah, so that's how we came up with that song. It's just funny how that that whole thing just came from me and Ferdy just uh eating chicken with some hot sauce on so it.
2: <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Great inspiration. I just want to clarify, too. Dave Marsh on bass and Frankie Addison, your brother, on soprano and tenor saxophone, right?
0: Yes. I think one of the interesting things of the recording is all the horn players have really different, unique personalities that comes out in their playing. And so, you know, you got two different trumpet players and Reginald Sinchi's trombone. He's from the Caribbean, right? Yes, so you can yes. get that kind of rhythmic yeah, sense, bum, bum, of the bum, bum. Caribbean yeah. rhythms in his lines, and he likes to do a lot of rhythmic tricks. And sometimes he builds the tension with some interesting harmonies. And yeah, I thought, oh, it's an interesting trombone player here.
2: Yeah, that rhythm too. That reminded me of a lot of Caribbean dance music.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, he. All of these guys are, um, you know, band leaders, and they are right. All of them have their own groups, and you know they play around the city and all of them have recordings out. You know, I just was very fortunate to um, be able to get them all on the CD uh, to do the project for me. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, all of them have recordings out, all of them are band leaders, all of them are music educators, so they're pros and and they know exactly what they're doing and it was fun to work with them. I was very uh, fortunate to have the opportunity.
0: Let's pick two more since we're (laughs) we're going long, but it's so much fun. That's fine, yeah. Your spot to shine, you know, you've got a lot of cool fills At the end of that tune, you get to open up a bit. But on the title track, Five, Relentless Pursuit, this is all you firing away at the beginning. So let's check this out. And what I really like here, I mentioned this when we talked about it, is the foreshadowing of the horn, things that come in. You know, you get that rhythm set up, and then we hear the horns do it. And then you get this really kind of, it reminded me of uh, James Bond or something, that kind of uh, ominous bass line, like things are getting dangerous here. And I just thought this was a lot of fun. Let's take a listen to it. crazy for a while there with the horns when the, those piano chords come in I'm like oh, okay this is fun
1: yeah it was good yeah so I started to get a little bit up top you know just take a little bit so the hits the licks that I did after the solo coming into where the horns came in, we that's actually a Max Roach lick um, mm-hmm. one of my favorite licks is, I call it skip it It's like skip it Bop," skip it Bop," skip it Bop," boom right. skip it boom kick kick but I slowed it down a little bit to make it fit what we were doing. So that's one of those famous Max, one of my favorite Max licks. So of course we did that and the horns came in on the top of that. Now, entering into that section where it's kind of, where it's crazy. That's exactly what I was trying to uh, implement in there because I wanted people to feel how crazy it can get or how it can be, you know, when you pursuing something. You know that you could be pursuing something and everything is fine and you're moving and you're grooving and you're moving fast and you're feeling good about it, then all of a sudden things get crazy, things get shaky, you know, things get complicated and things don't quite work out the way you want. And it just gets hectic and all this craziness is going around you. And that's what I wanted to portray in this song. That's why I put that section there, because it happens sometimes when you're in pursuit of something, things just get crazy and hectic and it just gets wild and, and messy. Right. And then but but at the same time, it all kind of clears up and you get back on track. And that's what we did in the song. We get back on track to where we were until we you know, then we move on to the solo sections. Of course, um Frankie and, and Reginald and uh William does their things. Then we have Michael Fishu at the end and doing that Latin part where he comes in and clears the air of everything. However, at the total end we go right back into those drum hits with the horns to say, hey, it's not over. That journey is over. But being relentless means you have to do the same thing over again for your next journey. So that's was the whole process of how, my way of thinking. Of course, and then, you know, you go from this, the swing to the Latin, swing to the Latin, swing to the Latin. You kind of change it up a little bit, make it exciting, make it interesting. My whole thought process through these songs were not to make it overcomplicated in a sense where I wanted to make it interesting enough for the hardcore jazz listeners to be able to listen and enjoy and appreciate it. But you may have the casual jazz listeners who don't really, you know, get into this type of music when they hear certain songs on the, on the CD, they can sit down and enjoy and listen to it because it's not overwhelming to them, you know, no matter what your age or anything like that. So if you got young people listening to it, Hey, they can get into it because it's not like, you know, too slow, it's like they feel all oh, jazz is for old people, but it's not too complicated. <laughs> well, I don't understand it is too much. So I wanted to kind of even the playing field where it could be a little bit of both for both sides.
0: Yeah, You've got a good balance in there. One, all the tunes are unique, but they all take you on a little journey. You know, you listen along and ooh, wasn't expecting that like plot twists in the, your movie or something. There's enough new things that happen that I think even people who, you know, uh, I don't know about jazz or you won't think it's complicated. You'll just find that it's surprising and new things are happening if you sit down and listen through it. So I don't think that's a real appealing quality.
1: Yeah, I'm not a complicated person, so I didn't want to make the music what I wasn't. I want to ask, this is also the uh, title of the album,
2: Relentless Pursuit. And you said the title sort of had a message. What would you say the title's messages?
1: Always Pursue. Relentlessly, whatever it is that you're pursuing, whatever it is that you're trying to go, whether it's education, love, mm-hmm. God, whatever your goals are. When you think about what we all went through do, uh, doing the George Floyd, Breonna Taylor situation, the right. deaths, and you know how people got together and really pursued and marched on for equality and equal rights and justice for all. You know, I haven't forgot about Trayvon either. You know, and it's something that we all need to do or should do whenever we pursue something. Nothing's too big and nothing's too small to be relentless in your pursuit. So if you stay true, never say never get into your inner thoughts. Let your uncharted part of your soul dwell in you. You know, you can feel that transformation. And when you get to that new horizon, you know, when and, and, you know, the cool breeze that you will feel when you get to the top of that mountain, you know, at the end of the day, just be relentless and no matter what you're pursuing, and if you do, 10 times out of 10, you will get there. Just be relentless in whatever it is you're pursuing. And that's the message I want to do. to portray to the people out there who are listening and uh, may hear it or Because I'm trying to, my, my goal is to let there be a message in the music, but also a music in the message. So it's a little bit of both. So these titles are more than just titles just because it sounds good or just because it may be hip, it's not even any of that. It's because I'm trying to spread a message to whomever listens that this is what's up. This is what we do. This is what we need to This is what needs to be done in order to be successful and happy in life and spread love and, and joy and all the other things that we all, you know, as a, as a people want in life. But just be relentless for it and, and believe that it can happen and it will. Great positive message. Here's one I
0: think I didn't play when we discussed the album, but it's interesting. I went back and listened to everything again last night. The Journey, another good title. When I was listening to this, I kind of highlighted what I wrote, that the groove in this tune evolves. It goes from Latin, and gradually you work it up into more of a rock kind of heavier beat. Then it goes back, and as each soloist comes on, You kind of transform that. So the beat is taking a little journey. That was my impression as this tune got started. Let's take a little listen to the beginning of this. horn lines there you're really driving that along once it settles in to that groove that's a pretty cool groove
1: i don't remember actually for what numbers that song was that i, that I had written I, I can't keep up with which one i wrote first or second or, i don't even remember now you know it's, it's all a blur but so we go into the the hard click bossa into the um more of the, the rock I, I believe the rock feel. now when we get to the other section it's more of a I was trying to portray more of a hip-hop type of feel. Mm-hmm. That's one of my dentist things, where I was trying to keep that funky hip-hop type of thing happening before we go back to the um, top of the, uh, the song where we go back to the boss. Of. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. For each solo, I wanted to do something different. And that's what I try to do with each of the songs that I that I played. I wanted to do something different with each solo where it wouldn't sound the same because I wanted to capture... Each individual, you know, with their own voice, who doing something different, and I wanted to be different along with them. So I try to get into their world instead of being in my own. I wanted to get into their world and where they were going and what they were trying to to say to whomever may listen to enhance what they were doing. So yeah, for each individual solos, I try to do something completely different according to what they were doing. So I was basically following them. Um, I wasn't trying to lead them or persuade them. I was basically, okay, you take me where you want to go and I'm going to go with you. That's why each solo was each beat that I played, even though I kept the form of the tunes and some portions of it, it was a different or completely different feel because all of the guys are, you know, individuals and I wanted to kind of portray that. And of course, you know, after each solo and then we went to the end and I got a little bit of a fanfare at the end. I did a little, you know, it gave me some, I don't know, fours, eights, whatever it was. And, um, of course then we had Reginald come at the end when we just vamped, vamped it out and uh he got allowed him to do his thing all over again, you know, and play through that, which was nice and funky and hard and you know, we bashed it out at the end and finished it up. So, you know, Frankie, Michael, Thomas and, and Reggie did great, great solos on those songs and I was very well pleased with them and the journey. That song is probably the longest, if I, if I'm not mistaken, the longest song on the CD because it was a journey and that's the journey. And that's what, that's what I was trying to portray it being a journey. They're short journeys, but most journeys are long and different and fast and changeable and, and hard and soft. And you get so many different elements when you're in a journey. Actually, here we go again, the journey I was kind of fighting, maybe that should be the title track. It was very difficult to decide at the end of which one would be because I wanted to, you know, the, the journey, it starts at the beginning, but that's okay because it's still a journey and I wanted to take people on the journey. So I hope when people listen to it, they allow themselves to get into the music, allow themselves to get into this song and let this song take them on a the journey. Don't think about it. Just feel it. I want you to feel what I'm doing, feel what the band is doing, feel what we're trying to say to you. When you go on your journey in this song, just let it take you wherever it's gonna take you. But just remember, at the end of that journey, it's gonna be great because whatever you're striving for in your journey, if you're relentless, then you will get there. So
0: All right, one more, the last tune. I thought this was cool, cool breeze, because uh here we don't hear shuffle enough these days, you know. But if you listen back to Art Blakey, you know, he always had a shuffle going on a record. But here it's kind of like a dictionary of grooves. He got the shuffle, he got some fills. Then it's swing in, then it's shuffle, and then out of the blue that kind of double time Latin feel comes in. I was like, oh man, all kinds of stuff is happening in this tune right from the beginning. So let's check out how this one gets going. Frankie. <laughs> we listen to that all day. <laughs>
1: yeah, that was cool. That was my rendition of the Blakey Shuffle. Nowhere near the master, of course, but I did my best on that particular tune at that particular time, giving all to R. Blakey. That song was actually swung. You know, it was, it was written as a swing tune. But when I was in the studio, you know, I don't know. In the middle of the night, who knows what time it was? Could have been two or three in the morning. I don't know. I started playing with it. Like man, I don't have a shuffle on this whole CD. Maybe it'd be great to do it to do this tune in a shuffle. It just feels right. Here we go again. What well, feels good? It just felt right to do a shuffle. And so I changed it and decided to shuffle it instead of doing a straight swing on it. Then of course we go into the uh, hits. That's me again. With the love of big band, trying to do some hits now. I'm not saying it is big band, but the hits emulate for me the big band feel because you know we got those big hits, which led us into straight in swinging. That's where the cool breeze comes. That's where you. Mm-hmm. That's it. All opens up when we start swinging, and you can feel that breeze right there. You just allow yourself just to feel that breeze once it starts swinging. That better. That's that air coming in. That breeze, baby and then going through this the little Latin thing. That really lifts it. It changes it up a little bit. It just felt like it needed to be there. I needed something different. It just felt right, it felt good. And you know the timing didn't change the timing as far as the tempos or anything in that nature. So I just, I thought that was great. Of course, we ended each solo with that feel. Yeah, it makes a nice transition. And then we just basically drove with the um, shuffle through all of the solo sections. And, um, you know, everybody got some of that. Michael Tom is, well, uh, Reginald Centre and then Frankie, then Michael, then uh, William got got some of that, and uh, uh, Dave finished it off, and then we just came back in with the top and the hits and ended it with the Latin feel on the end, let William do his thing, and finished up the CD, finished up the song with power and, you know, excitement, and there we are.
0: We listened to a lot of music so far. We're up to, I don't know, 760 I
1: think, Al- recordings. Albums.
0: <laughs> we got to listen to so much. So, one of the things that stuck in my mind from having to listen to so much new music is which recordings make us want to go back and hear them again. You know, what's that quality about a recording that makes you want to rediscover it? And I think it's a kind of recording where you can find something new every time you listen to it. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. that's where I think the unorthodox nature. There's a lot of things you're not ready for the first time you listen here, even though they all flow together. And when I sat down and listened to it again last night, I found new things again. Oh, I didn't catch that the first time. Oh yeah, listen to that solo here. I didn't realize, you know, the beats were changing under there. So I think you've got that quality built in. It's a real rewarding recording. You can go back and listen again and again and find something new each time, and not every you know recording we listen to is like that. But yours definitely has that built into it.
1: Thank you, I appreciate that. You know that was the idea to make it interesting, exciting, um, interchangeable. At the same time, I wanted it to be uh, trying to portray you know flexibility where it's not like I, I keep using the word overcomplicated, but at the same time entertaining and at the same time interesting. So I hope. That um people find that when they listen to the CD, and I hope that they find when they listen to the CD and, and absolutely when they uh, read the titles of each song that they can kind of grasp what message I'm trying to portray to them in the music. It's not about me. It's not about, you know, how great I am as a, as a musician or a writer or anything else. It's about how I can make people feel. What can I do to bring joy to people, not only the jazz world, but just in general? You know, you don't have to be a jazz listener to enjoy jazz. And if I can accomplish that, then I think that my goal was meant. So, yeah, you know, right now we, we're going to continue to, to promote the CD and we're going to continue to um promote the message. Right now, I, I just pray that that is what's going to happen with this particular project.
0: Amen to that. Yeah. Yeah. Hope you get a big audience for this because it's a lot of fun. You know, now you've got your music documented it's recorded, so it's there forever. And I think you come through as the obvious leader. You can tell that the drums are in charge, but you were really generous. It's just a really well-rounded recording. It's amazing you got so much together into you know your first jazz recording. Now this is done, what's next? What do you want to tackle next? Where are we going from here?
1: That is a great question. <laughs> yeah. So for me, I have probably tons well, 20 maybe gospel praise and worship tunes that I haven't recorded yet. So I'm kind of leaning towards that because, you know, I love jazz and I love, well, I love all kinds of music, all styles of music, you know, but it's nothing like praise and worship music. It's nothing like that music because that allows me not to be me. It's not about me when I'm playing this music. It's about it's about God and giving him glory. And that's so much, that is so important to me because without him, none of this would be possible anyway. So I'm kind of leaning towards that. However, if I do get a demand for more of the jazz, then I will have no problem with doing that as well. In fact, I'm kind of messing around, writing some stuff now. And, um, you know, just seeing how things feel right now, I want to promote the CD and do some performances. I have performances coming up in November uh, at a couple of the venues here in D.C., Westminster Church in um, Northwest D.C. It's a Presbyterian church. But it's cool because they have jazz every Friday night. And they've been doing this for over twenty years. So they allow me to have the floor on November tenth to promote the CD and do a CD release. And then also I'm uh having a performance at Blues Alley in Georgetown on November twentieth to promote the CD. So I'm g- gonna push this as best I can and uh just go ahead and do some gigs, man. It's it's fun. It's it's good to be able to do, you know, performances now that the pandemic is over with, we get to do some nightclub gigs, weddings, and all the receptions and things of the nature, private parties, what have you. So as far as recording, we're going to see how it goes. I have a lot of music that I want to get out, whether it's jazz or gospel or maybe R&B. I grew up listening to it all, so I love it all. So we're going to see. I, I won't make any predictions right now. Just leave it to the Lord and see where He leads me and wherever He leads me to go, and that's where I'm going. Sounds good. Yeah. This
0: is still fresh this recording, so I hope we can help uh, get some new ears to it and we'll see where it goes. Definitely whatever you do next we'll be looking out for it.
2: Yeah, let us know actually.
0: We wish you the best of luck with success for this one. Thanks. Hopefully you can get, uh, you know, all that kind of music that you like. I hope you get another gospel oriented recording, but I'm really looking forward to whatever ideas you put together for jazz in the future.
1: Mm-hmm. Thank you. I appreciate it. I appreciate the time you gentlemen have given me. Um, God, have been nothing but great for this interview. You know, you can still tell I'm kind of nervous. I've been nervous since we yeah. first started, you know. So, uh, you know, I appreciate it, man. Y'all getting me through it and uh, allowing me to use this platform to, um, put my music out. And, and, uh, I pray that God bless you both with your endeavors on your podcast. And I would definitely be telling people about it because <laughs> it's, it's a great thing. It's, a, it's something that everybody should be. Uh, listening to. So I'm going to make sure that I do my part so people can definitely tune you guys in. Thank you so much for that.
0: Yeah, thanks. Really appreciate that. All right, everyone, if you haven't heard it yet, you got to check this recording out. Deck Records, Tony Addison's Relentless Pursuit. It's in our playlist. You can find it on all the major streaming platforms. Amazon's got the CD. Listen to it again and again. It's that kind of recording. And I think you want to have it in your collection. So thanks again, Tony. We're looking forward to big things in the future. We've had a great time today, and we wish you all the success.
1: Thank you. Appreciate it.